Blog Talk Radio. February 2nd, 2018 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we discuss news, politics, and culture from the individual's perspective. And I'm looking at my Mevo right now because someone is telling me, and I see it myself, this camera is way too close on me. Why is it doing this? Why is it not? Uh, Here, autopilot. Let's go. Let's get it to move in and out and do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, so those of you, you might be listening to me at Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm also trying to do live stream over at Facebook, and you just heard me drop my book, too. This is going to be a fun show. Anyway, um, I'm trying to tell it to autopilot and zoom out a little or something. What is it doing? It's just got me on this close-up, and that's it. So... Are you getting any? No, it's just it's just like right on my face and it's not doing its autopilot thing. Let me see what I can get it to do here. Oh. I was trying to get the um yeah, autopilot. Okay, let's see what it does if I do autopilot like this. Is it going to back up and Yeah, okay, so it's blind faces. Okay, we're going to try. It's zooming in and out now, she says. Okay, great. Beautiful. Now it's in really close again. Let's see. Maybe we'll make it zoom in and out a little more quickly. Let's see what it does. You guys tell me. We'll figure it out. In any event, I'm doing a show here on Friday. I'm sorry I missed you guys on Wednesday. But on Wednesday, if you saw me announcing on social media over at the blog, also at DontLetItGo.com, there was this epic live stream that was going on exactly at the time of my usual show between Dave Rubin and Jordan B. Peterson and Ben Shapiro. So you have this discussion of some of my favorite people going on live at exactly the same time as my own show. So I hope you understand why I wanted to be there watching that myself more than, yes, even talking to you guys. I'm sorry about that. But I also figured that watching that would be more material for what I would want to bring to my discussion of Jordan B. Peterson's book anyway. So that's part of the reasoning. But really, the truth was, at that hour of that day, there was nothing I would have rather wanted to do than watch that live stream. So we're here today. I've got only an hour today because I have a hard commitment after this right at the 1 p.m. Pacific time. So indulge me, but we're going to do the first part of my discussion of Jordan B. Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. 
And that's the book that you heard me drop a second ago. So let me reach down and grab it. Yeah, real book actually marked up and all this stuff. People, again, who are following me on social media, you've seen that in, um, you know, both, both on Instagram and then on Facebook, I've got this album going of just selected highlighting and some marginalia. It's not super precise in terms of saying, oh, I've given you the essence of what I think is notable in this chapter, but it's close. And so, you know, in terms of me giving you one picture of maybe the most important thing that I highlighted in that chapter, that's what I've tried to do in those. But, it, you know, again, it's not perfect. And today, this is part one of our discussion. One of the things that helps me to relax about that is because we're going to have part two. So if I say anything and I go back and I decide, okay, I want to correct later, then um I'll be able to do that. That's one of the beautiful things of being, say, a college professor when you have a whole semester is that if you make a little bit of a mistake or you say something not quite the way you wanted to say it one day, you can go back and correct yourself another day. Uh, you know why? I'm, I'm sitting here. It's like I have my second cup of coffee of the day and already talking about Jordan B. Peterson's book, I'm a little bit nervous. I mean, this is, this is a big project. This is a big, important book, and I want to do justice by it. At the same time, I want to give you some thoughts that I have, including critical thoughts about it. So this is what I'm going to try to do today. So um, just in terms of overall my attitude towards Peterson, I want to make it clear because when I have been posting some things about him, some people come in, like, for instance, I'll put one of the pages where I've done some highlighting and put some question marks and say, you know, for instance, I've got the title of the show, Am I an Atheist? You know, am I, am I really an atheist? He would say, no, you think you're an atheist, but really you're not. You don't know. You can't understand this. And there's one page in the book. I can't, was it 24? I can't remember. Um, 42, who knows? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you when I get there. But, you know, I put that page up and then somebody will write something like, oh, where's that from? It's a bunch of BS or something. And I'm sorry. I, first of all, I wouldn't be spending the time on it if I thought that that was my attitude. But I think... I don't think that as somebody who is a proponent of individual autonomy, who's someone who's fighting for limited government and freedom, that you should look at something from Jordan B. Peterson and go, oh, yeah, that's BS. Um, you know, he's been an important ally in this fight for individual autonomy and for free speech. You may have become aware of him initially because he was fighting he was at the forefront of the fight in Canada against laws that mandate the use of certain gender pronouns so you know in terms of politics he's an ally another thing is if you go out and just look at any of the videos that he puts out there for free on YouTube from all of his psychology classes and then people you know they clip little bits of it and they put it on their YouTube channels and they're probably making money off him and all this stuff. He puts a lot of really good content out there. And I myself have found a lot of the advice that he gives, some of the things that he says really resonate with me. Um, so what I do, and I actually kind of put this out in a meme because uh, there was some discussion on my Facebook uh, the other day about this. He has a rule and it's rule nine in his book and the way that he phrases it. And I went ahead and st I, I got really addicted to doing all these Peterson Newman 
memes. And I've, I've now sworn off them, by the way. I'm, I'm not going to do any more. But he says, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. I think it's not quite the way that it's put in some other context when he's talked about it. Like, you know, the, the, the person might know something that you need to know. And this is definitely how I treat Peterson. And so, you know, if people were going to call in a block talk radio and say, oh, you know, he's full of garbage or um, he's got either a wrong or a mixed up view of metaphysics that we disagree with. And so therefore just dismiss everything. I'm not receptive to that. Now, uh, you know, there was some discussion on my Facebook yesterday and someone was saying, you know, something like, oh, well, maybe other objectivist intellectuals aren't going to engage him in this way. Or, I mean, first of all, that's not my concern. So I have a motivation to engage with this material. And part of the reason that I do is something that I can explain as an analogy to what Dave Rubin was talking about on his live stream the other day. He talked about that in his work, you know, when he's out there doing his YouTube show and he's interviewing all these interesting people, that he's been going on this intellectual journey and that he has changed certain of his views, that he was, you know, more liberal or you would really say more leftist because he's gone now in a classical liberal direction. And in effect, he's taking his listeners along with me. And so what I do in my show, I admit my show is often so self-indulgent. So who did I interview last week? I interviewed a hormone doctor who, you know, I found on the internet because I was researching a potential new treatment for autoimmune disorders. I've got this Hashimoto's, right? So, you know, if, if there's something out there that I think might help me and then I'm trying to integrate it into my overall knowledge and worldview and everything else, I'm going to talk about that here. And so I see this as part of that. I've talked about Mark Manson's work on this show. And yes, Jordan Peterson, I believe, has something to offer people. He seems to really be helping people improve their lives. So no, I'm not sympathetic to the idea of you just throw the baby out with the bathwater because we disagree with him. At the same time, I'm going to say some critical things. But overall, this man is a very brave man who is fighting the good fight. And he's very smart. He knows a lot about psychology, which is a very difficult field. I'm, you know, myself, this is how I would describe my journey, right? So I would say, intellectually, my fundamentals, had been basically set by age 12 or so. And then the question is how to live that life throughout the course of your life. And it's not just about philosophy. It's also about caring for your health and caring your, for your psychology um, and figuring out, you know, how to set your own expectations for yourself and live up to them and all of those things. Right. So I'm out there looking for this information and as I said, a lot of what Peterson has said has resonated and a lot not. So I'm going through this process. It is quite possible that other objectivist intellectuals, A, they don't go through the same journey that I do, you know, that everybody's got their own stuff. Uh, but B, sometimes maybe these other intellectuals have gone through a similar exercise as what I'm doing with Peterson. And maybe they ended up saying, well, no, I really couldn't divorce the higher level advice, you know, what they were talking about the other day, the tip of the iceberg in the, in the live stream that they were talking about from 
the fundamentals. And so you actually ended up not being able to use the advice. So it could be, am I you know, going down a rabbit hole or something? You'll be able to tell me at a certain point. Um, now, I just had somebody on Blog Talk who hung up. I don't know if they're going to come back on. But if you do call in and you want to ask a question, make a comment, the number to do so is 760-888-5817. You can leave comments in the chat room over at Blog Talk and on Facebook as well as we go through. They say the audio is solid on Facebook. I'm thinking you're getting the audio through my iPad mic. I think that's where you're getting it from. So we'll see. Uh, John says in the chat room, that's a power t-shirt. Um, Robert, a listener to the show, made the meme that basically made it have to be the case. I'm accountable to now having given up on making these Peterson Newman memes. And it was me saying, you know, I've, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going cold turkey. I'm not going to make these memes anymore. And so he photoshopped my face onto Jordan Peterson's body. So I'm wearing the suit and everything. I'm thinking, Photoshop me in some sexy dress or something. <laughs> no. Um, so John Roberts says, I need a power tie, you know, to go along with, with Peterson's suit. And um, I say, no, a power T-shirt. Right? I got my Wyatt Oil T-shirt to celebrate Rand's birthday here. So any of it, um, what I may do for you guys is I might give you a two-hour show next week to make up for the fact that we're only going an hour today. But let's get into this. So, uh, and I'm going through just sort of chronologically through the book and giving you impressions of what I say. Overall, I had expressed a concern and I had posted it on Facebook. Overall, my concern is so far, reading what I've read so far, that Peterson for whatever reason, I'm not going to, you know, figure out, does he have a certain motivation or not? I believe Peterson is earnestly trying to help people live better lives. And he is earnestly trying to stave off tyranny on the one hand, you know, authoritarian tyranny on the one hand and nihilism on the other. And he declares as much in his overture in the beginning of the book. Um, Nonetheless, as an objectivist, you know, as someone who agrees with Rand's philosophy, I have an understanding that says that individual autonomy, the ability to guide your life according to your rational faculty, which is what we're equipped with, that that requires understanding that your perception is valid, that your concepts based on your perception are valid, that your reason is valid. Not that you never make mistakes, but that it is a valid faculty and a lot of what he he says in here, or at least you know some of what he says in this book, can tend to make you undermine your reliance on your rational faculty. So I would say, you know, at a fundamental philosophical level, he could tend to undercut the very faculty that we must rely upon if we're going to have individualism, if we're going to be supporters of individual autonomy, if we're going to uphold a limited government based on the principle of individual rights, the principle of individual rights is there to enable you to guide your life according to your own rational judgment. But if your own rational judgment is irrevocably faulty, uh, then that's no good. Now, mind you, I don't think he thinks it's faulty. And I'll talk about what I mean by that in a minute. He thinks that there is 
something within consciousness that's, you know, built in that can help us. And he seems to think we can tap into it because he's giving us advice about how to tap into it. So it is, it, you know, it, it's a, it's a mixed case. And, and so my concern is I'm looking through this is obviously there's things that I disagree with him about. I do think that our rational faculty is capable and more reliable. I do think that my judgment that I'm an atheist is, is a good one. Um, but at the same time, what I want to do is I want to integrate the evidence and the wisdom that he provides in this book into my own philosophical context. And obviously that's for me, but if it helps somebody else as well, then I'm happy to help. And and like I say, I see Peterson as a, as a great ally in the fight. And so that is, that is my overall approach to this. Um, Robert in the thing says, I didn't think you were serious about stopping the memes. I'm serious about it, but whether I'm going to be able to conform my conduct with what I believe is the proper course of action for me is a, is another question. And that's a teaser uh, in a minute. Okay. So let's go through. So in the beginning and what I, what I like one thing overall is that there is overlap in what you see in Peterson and other things that I have been interested in. In particular, he has uh, a long introduction that is written by uh, Dr. Norman Deutsch. I hope that I've pronounced his name correctly. He's the author of The Brain That Changes Itself, which is something that I've listened to on Audible before. And the other thing that I've already noticed in terms of uh, you know, sort of advice from different fields that is in Peterson as well is sort of paleo-ish advice in the lobster chapter. So we'll talk about that too. But uh, with Deutsch, there's a couple things I wanted to point out. First of all, that Peterson, he is so much concerned with totalitarian tyranny. It's a, it was, it's a big focus of his apparently. And one thing that Deutsch mentions that stuck out for me is that Peterson has in his home on walls, I think maybe in a kitchen or something, because they talk about having tea and, and seeing this, some Soviet propaganda just in posters on walls. And that the reason I think it, that as, you know, as I recall Deutsch talking about it is that he wants to always remember the danger of that tyranny from Soviet Russia. And, to me, that just is darker than I would want to have my environment be. You know, um, I've got this reproduction of one of my favorite sculptures here, and I've got different things. Of course, I do have the GFDA with all the, you know, FFF on, on the wall up there, but I don't see that as negative in any way. Um, you know, you, you for me, I wouldn't want to have dark reminders of danger on my wall but you know it just gives you a little picture of of the the burden i think that peterson takes on for himself in in terms of of fighting tyranny uh another thing i want to point out is a premise that deutsch thinks is you know this is the premise of this book uh you know that kind of underlies peterson's whole approach and this is this from page 23 of the introduction, it's in Roman numerals. He says, because we do not yet have an ethics based on modern science, 
there's something else we have to do. He says, far better to integrate the best of what we are now learning with the books human beings saw fit to preserve over millennia. So there's not an ethics based on modern science is the premise. Those of us who are objectivists sympathetic with Rand's view, we say, okay, well, she has, in effect, a scientific ethics. It's not that the ethics is based on modern science. In fact, Rand's approach to philosophy, we would say, is, is the foundation of science, an implicit foundation, of course, for science to move forward is, is the way that we would put it. But, um, you know, if, if that's your premise, that there's no ethics based on modern science, and in fact, that there's no ethics possible based on reason, then you could see why this approach would take place. And you'd say, okay, well, look at the books. You know, what have human beings, what themes and advice have human beings been writing about for millennia? Isn't there some wisdom there to be had? Okay, sure, that does. That, that seems like a valid approach. In Peterson's own overture, the, you know, he, he also emphasizes, of course, those, those books. And he talks about the yin and the yang, the order and chaos. And this, you, you're familiar with the yin-yang symbol. I can't, I, I actually, I don't know if I've got one to put up. He's got some illustrations in here, but I don't think he has an illustration of that. I hope you're familiar with it. But, you know, it's a circle and then half of it is black and half of it is white. Uh, but it's not exactly half and half, you know, that's like a little serpent. And that line between the yin and the yang, one of them representing order and the other representing chaos is what he's calling being. And you can sort of, when as he's describing it, get this just kind of visceral grasp of what he means by meaning. But, it, you know, it's, it's the, this idea of we are constantly trying to bring into order, bring into our context of knowledge and our overall framework, the things that we don't understand, the things that we don't know about out there. Um, so it's interesting, interesting discussion of, of what that is. Um, he's a little self-deprecating. You know, he, he, he says he's got all this positive response. He says he's always surprised when people respond positively to what he's saying, given its seriousness and strange nature. And it could be that a lot of people aren't necessarily listening to always the darker and the skeptical things that he has to say, but he always knows that that is there. Uh, a lot of people are just watching those shorter clips out there on YouTube, or they're watching that beautiful interview that he did with Kathy Newman, where he composed himself so very well and stuck to exactly what his message was and didn't let her twist it with respect to the, the gender pay gap, the supposed gender pay gap. Uh, perhaps that's why, but, you know, he he does, he seems to sometimes evince the sort of a, a lack of self-confidence and, and humility um, as well. So that's a, a little idea of what he says. Now, there's a page that I went ahead and, and featured, and it was because I saw an echo of a theme of a show of mine a couple of weeks ago, which was this running with scissors show that I did. And this concept of the, of the scissors was, a concept that I got from my friend Benjamin, who wrote a blog post about this idea of a cognitive gap between how you think things should be, how you expect them to be, and how they really are in the world. And then I went ahead and 
developed it and said, okay, well, you know, it's bad to run with scissors in the sense that it's bad to draw any significant conclusions or take significant actions based on any frustration that you're experiencing because of this gap. It could be what psychologists are thinking about as flooding and things, right? That you're, um, go look up flooding if you're interested. I don't want to get on a tangent. But in any event, on page 30, again, in the Roman numerals in the overture part of his book, he is talking about, Peterson is talking about he, how he couldn't understand the Cold War, that basically people were ready to die or destroy the world in order to protect belief systems, belief systems that they had. And, it, you know, he's saying, well, you know, what is it about belief systems that are so important to people that they'd be willing just to destroy the whole world in order to preserve them? And he says, well, it's not exactly that people will fight for what they believe. He says they will fight instead to maintain the match between what they believe, what they expect, and what they desire. They will fight to maintain the match between what they expect and how everyone is acting. And doesn't that sound exactly like the scissors? And so the way that he ends up kind of, you know, stating what his goal is toward the end is that you can, oh, someone in the blog talk chat room actually put the little yin yang symbol Tom did. So thanks Tom for putting that in there. Uh, if you want, oh, and Jean put it over on Facebook, right? So we've got a, uh, thank you guys for, for helping me out there. Um, yeah, that yin-yang thing is a, is a cute one. And then the question is, can you translate the yin-yang, yin-yang symbol to an objectivist context? Something that's interesting to me. So um, on the one hand, he says that when people adhere slavishly to ideologies when people go ahead and and internalize ideologies in a slavish is the way he puts it you could say authoritarian way then that will create this dissonance between how they expect everybody to behave you know whether in their own society or in the world and how they're actually behaving and he believes that it's that sort of adherence to ideology that will create conflict between people, physical conflict between people. Um, And so he would like, of course, to escape that. Traditionally, the only alternative to that has been utter nihilism and skepticism, where you just dispense with ideology altogether. And he says, no, that also is not good because there are values to having a set of ideas. So for example, going back to page 30 in his introduction, he says, you know, people who live by the same code are rendered mutually predictable to one another. You know, there is some value to this. And of course there's a value to your own life. uh, If you live according to a certain set of ideas or or principles as well. So he doesn't want to go that route either. And so the struggle is, how do you get something that is not on the one hand, this slavish uh, adherence? Actually, let me just give you his exact language. He says, uh, slavish adherence to the group and its doctrines. That's the one side. And then the other side is the opposite extreme. He says, nihilism. 
And his goal is to transcend either of those. That's what he wants to do. And he says it is possible, and this is on page 33 of his book. So this is his goal that he wants to help people achieve. He says it is possible instead to find sufficient meaning in individual consciousness and experience. And I would say, you know, one of the things about him is he is dedicated to be very, being very precise in his language. And of course, I'm stumbling over my words as I'm saying this because I would like to be more precise. Everybody would love to be, I believe, more precise in the language that they use, even in a live show like I'm doing right here. When he says find here, find, and find is the sense in which, if you watch the live stream the other day with Shapiro and, and uh, Ruben that Ruben hosted with Shapiro and, and Peterson, Shapiro was saying that Peterson is more Aristotelian and he Shapiro is more platonic. And so, and I, on a certain sense, that's accurate with Aristotle, you would find the essence within a human being. And I think part of what Peterson wants to bake into the human being is the meaning the, and sort of a core of the ethics and how does he do that is going to be illustrated in his discussion of, of some of the rules. Uh, so that's his goal, right? And he wants to help people kind of, you know, be on that line between order and chaos, find meaning to their lives, make their lives better, given his context of knowledge, his beliefs, his philosophical commitments. And you know, question is, what can we as objectivists take out of it? Let me go and look over at any comments other than the yin and yang symbol. You're waiting to hear more about what I have to say on this. Um, as I said, if you do want to call in and you want to give me your sort of uh, take on Peterson, you can do that as well, 760-888-5817. Or better yet, given that I don't got the audio going over from Blog Talk 2, I don't have Where's my grammar? I don't have the audio from Blog Talk going over to Facebook. Okay, let me take a sip of something and then let's dive in the rules and give you my take on them. We got about a half hour, so we can get through some of them at least. Good. Okay, so first rule, and this is the rule that was at the forefront of all of the YouTube chat, the live stream the other day. It's about lobsters. The rule is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And here I am. Okay. Let's get the chair a little, little straighter here. It's good advice, right? Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Don't get your posture all messed up and your shoulders sore. So in this chapter, he is talking about what it's like to be a lobster, which sounds really horrible. And the hierarchy that lobsters live in when they're fighting over territory, the best place so that you can be safe and gather all the food and everything, and, and what it's like when two lobsters battle things out. And in particular, the role of the chemical serotonin in the lobster's prospects for success or failure and how they hold themselves and everything else. Uh, you know, how they actually even remake their brains when they fail because of the chemicals that are there, et cetera. And get to page 11. 
and you start to get the sense of what he's doing. You know, why is he talking about lobsters? He's going to end up bringing a moral of this over to us, that there's certain things about our physiology that we have in common with lobsters that ends up giving you this advice about stand up straight with your shoulders back. Um, and what were people doing the other day? You know, everything's a lobster, lobster this, some of the memes with Newman, you know, so you're saying I'm a lobster, et cetera. But there, there is a very good message in here. And then the question is, you know, to, to what extent do objectivists agree with the message that would be uh, taken from all of this knowledge about how lobsters are and, and the commonality that we share with them in, in terms of serotonin and its role in our chemistry. Uh, you know, he says evolution laid down the cornerstones cornerstones for basic physiology long ago. And, you know, we have within us elements of this basic physiology. Um, the other thing he talks about is natural selection is not a fixed point. It's always moving. And so it's not like, you know, we're continually adapting to an environment that itself is staying static. That environment is always changing too. We always have to do that. So of course that makes what we have to do as humans surviving and thriving in this world, even more daunting, right? The fact that, that everything is changing, even though we've been evolving, we think we human beings think we're pretty good at adapting our environment to our needs, to our life. And yet, Maybe we should be worried about this, um, you know. But he is—he's very good on environmentalism, by the way. So, for example, you know, he says, "Well, people have this mystical idea, almost, of the, you know, that the environment is this wonderful thing." He says, "You shouldn't conceptualize nature romantically." Rich modern city dwellers surrounded by hot baking concrete imagine the environment as something pristine and paradisal, like a French impressionist landscape. Eco-activists, even more idealistic in their viewpoint, envision nature as harmoniously balanced and perfect. And he says, the environment, in scare quotes, is also elephantitis and guinea worms, mosquitoes, malaria, starvation-level droughts, AIDS, and the Black Plague. He says, we don't fantasize about the beauty of these, but they're just as real as their Edenic, you know, like the Garden of Eden counterparts. So... um, you know, this, this idea of making order out of chaos, one of the elements is that nature, as he puts it, is, quote, hell-bent on our destruction. That's part of what we have to do. And, you know, in, in terms of us, one of the things that is part of our being or part of us as we've evolved, he says, is something that we share, he says, with the lobsters, this idea of a so-called dominance hierarchy. So he says the dominance hierarchy applies also to human beings. He says the dominance hierarchy, however social or cultural it might appear, has been around for half a billion years. It's permanent. It's real. So this is something that you need to accept about yourself, that there are things within you that are manifestations of this dominance hierarchy that has existed in other creatures for half a billion years, he says. It's permanent, it's real. And, you know, he's got citations to to back up much of the things that he says here. It's not like he's telling you something out of the blue. 
And then he goes on to part, you know, in terms of our minds, our brain. He says the part of our brain that keeps track of our position in the dominance hierarchy is therefore exceptionally ancient and fundamental. He says it is a master control system modulating our perceptions, values, emotions, thoughts, and actions. And when I look at that, I say modulating. So modulating is not quite a word that says determining, right? But that somehow it is affecting our perceptions. Modulating though. And and if you read that and you don't have a certain context of philosophy about, for instance, the validity of perception, the validity of sense perception, when you read that, you think, oh, well, maybe there's something wrong with my sense perception. It's deceiving me um, that I have no choice in the matter that I'm being affected by this dominance hierarchy that's been around for half a billion years. Next sentence, he says that this, uh, you know, he says modulate perceptions, values, emotions, thoughts, and actions. Next sentence, it powerfully affects every aspect of our being, conscious and unconscious alike effects now effects doesn't necessarily mean determine but it gives you this idea of sort of the space in which you are able to have control over your ability to perceive things as they really are you're sensing it narrow if you're not doing what I'm calling double entry bookkeeping. Double entry bookkeeping is a phrase that I learned from Leonard Peikoff. And he talked about when he would go to graduate school and they would be teaching all these invalid philosophical systems. And he'd always have to say, okay, well, how would I translate this into my frame of reference, the beliefs that I have, the philosophy that I believe is true? How do I integrate this? So, you know, is he saying determinism? No, not quite. But you have to say, okay, you know, what exactly is he saying? 16, he says, the ancient part of your brain specialized for assessing dominance watches how you are treated by other people. On that evidence, it renders a determination of your value and assigns you a status. If you are judged by your peers as of little worth, the counter restricts serotonin availability. That makes you much more physically and psychologically reactive to any circumstance or event that might produce emotion, particularly if it's negative. Okay, that's good. That's fine. You say, okay, you learn this about yourself. Um, perhaps they do studies and they see this happen and they can check my serotonin levels when I go out on Twitter. You know, this last time Ben Shapiro retweeted one of my tweets and it was this funny meme from Peterson. So I got very little negative feedback, but sometimes a few times Shapiro has retweeted something of mine where it's really controversial and it just invites all these trolls and they come in and they say horrible things. Or, you know, I was on the Tucker thing talking about assisted suicide and I had people tweeting to me, you first. So sometimes you see that stuff and yeah, it does affect you. If you're a human being, you see these things and it affects you. Now, mind you, I don't know these people. So it's not as bad as if somebody whom I respect decides to dismiss me or say something mean and horrible about me it's not as bad as that but you know you can look at this and say yeah okay that makes sense that there is something that goes on and I feel more reactive I feel less able to direct myself and make good decisions for myself if I'm in that state okay good that doesn't mean you're determined but that means that there are certain 
you know, sort of challenges presented by your physiology under certain circumstances. Uh, so what does he say? You know, what is it that you can do about the fact that this exists and that it could affect your ability to, in a, you know, I would say, act rationally, you know, under, under certain types of pressures? And, you know, he says one of the things that you have to do is give yourself a routine, treat yourself well, you know, stand up straight with your shoulders back. There's been a number of, you know, sort of success gurus and things that talk about this connection between your posture and your body language and your mood that the the two can intertwine. You can actually make yourself feel a little bit better by forcing a smile, even when you feel horrible. You know, you got your, get yourself into the idea that it's not a completely phony exercise, of course, but you know, yeah, stand up straight with your shoulders back. It, it can help you feel that much better. Now, what can you do at a very basic level he talks about some of the same advice that I've heard from fitness gurus and diet gurus and everything else. So first of all, one of the high intensity trainers, and I can't remember which one it was, if it was Menser or um, some of the other guys' names have, or, or, you know, they're not coming to me right now, but one of them had talked about, you know, answering the question, what is your first point of insertion, so to speak? What, what is the first thing you can do to improve your ability to perform better in your life in all areas? And it's with your sleep. And it's the same thing that Peterson says here. He says, I always ask my clinical clients first about sleep. Do they wake up in the morning at approximately the same time a typical person wakes up and at the same time every day? If the answer is no, Fixing that is the first thing I recommend. And he says it doesn't matter so much if you go to bed at the same time each evening, but waking up at a consistent hour is necessary. So getting that sleep in order. I've heard from other people. So Dr. Schur, Schur, I believe is how you pronounce it, Brett Schur. He's the one that was recommended by HD in the interview. He talks about the fact that every hour that you sleep before 10 p.m., no, before 10, no, no. Every hour that you sleep before midnight is like two hours after in terms of the benefit that it provides for you so that if you go to sleep at 10, it just does you a world of good or 11, you know, and, and get yourself at least a good hour of sleep before. So, yeah, get your sleep in order that this, you know, sleep deprivation can affect your ability to function cognitively throughout the day. Okay, fine. That's good. Uh, breakfast. He says he counsels his clients to eat a fat and protein heavy breakfast as soon as, po- as possible after they awaken. And what will happen if you don't? If you have carbohydrates, then they digest too rapidly and you get a blood sugar spike and rapid dip. What he ends up saying, I believe, is that, oh yeah, he says that people who do this, like if you you know, you're fasting all night, you haven't eaten all night, and then you put these carbohydrates in your body. He says the extra insulin in your bloodstream will mop up all the blood sugar. And he says they become hypoglycemic and psychologically or psychophysiologically is the way he puts it, psychophysiologically unstable all day. Now, those of us who are objectivist paleo-ish, we are doing, you know, fats and proteins in the morning. Of course, I do a lot of my fat with butter in the coffee 
But you could say, okay, well, if you have too much coffee, that's going to make you anxious as well. And one of the things he's trying to get people not to be is anxious or depressed where they're behaving in a reactive way as opposed to a proactive way. So he's giving you advice. He's saying, yeah, there is this underlying physiology that you have. Let me tell you some things that you can do to put yourself in the best possible situation. And I guess, you know, the other underlying advice is to be aware uh, of this, you know, that this actually happens. Now, um, he then also goes on to talk about, you know, standing up for yourself and, and all the things of that are the importance of being assertive um, and, and being able to call forth anger even when necessary in order to protect yourself. And he has a rather inspiring passage about this because the, the whole idea is he wants people to be able to stand up for themselves and to fight off tyranny and authoritarianism. So on page 24, he says, the forces of tyranny expand inexorably to fill the space made available for their existence. People who refuse to muster appropriate self-protective territorial responses are laid open to exploitation as much as those who genuinely can't stand up for their own rights because of a more essential inability or a true imbalance in power. And then later down on the page, he says, the willingness of the individual to stand up for him or herself protects everyone from the corruption of society. In the book, he sometimes skirts with the idea both that you have a duty to, you know, do certain things for yourself. And as objectivists, we would never put even that in terms of duty, but also that you should also for society, um, Obviously, I would say as an objectivist, and John Allison has talked about this theme as well, and your own talks about it, that we do. We want to help make the world a better place, but it's not like we feel we have a duty to do it. We want to live in this world. We want to help make the world a better place for us and for the people who we care about, et cetera. We don't necessarily see it as a duty, but what can you do? You have to be ready to stand up for yourself. Um, you know, he goes on to talk about people who he's seen in his clinical practice, soldiers who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And the reason most likely that they would have it would be because of something that they did when they were fighting. So they had to kill an enemy. Maybe even they had to kill a civilian in order to protect themselves at a certain point. And he says, when these people who were once naive he says, recognizing themselves the seeds of evil and monstrosity, and they see themselves as dangerous, at least potentially, their fear decreases. Uh, skipping down a little, he says, they see that they have the ability to withstand because they are terrible too. For me, when you say, okay, well, somebody is terrible, that seems like a value judgment. Now, I've heard the word terrible used in a different way where you say, they have an ability to fight and be intimidating and scary and, you know, physically destructive, but it doesn't necessarily mean that morally you would judge them as bad. So he could mean that in that sense. But when you look at the standard dictionary definition that you just get the first time you Google online, because I did it, 
terrible is bad. And I wouldn't say these people are not bad. So then there's the sentence that, you know, I ended up having a little bit of qualms with as an objectivist. He says, there's very little difference between the capacity for mayhem and destruction integrated and strength of character. And what, you know, and, and some of this, when I read this, it, it reminded me of something he had said in an interview. There was one interview where he seemed particularly kind of down on himself and that he was worried. And he, he expressed this thought a little bit in the live stream with Ruben the other day too, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't as pessimistic sounding out of him when he was saying it the other day, but the idea that he's going to make some mistake, some horrible mistake, and it's going to have really bad consequences like like you're worried about this and i wonder if this has something to do with it you know that you recognize okay you have this capacity that you could if pushed you can go out there and cause mayhem and destruction then that capacity of course you would integrate and that could become part of what you know you have at your disposal if you need to have it and that could be part of strength of character but once you, I mean, it, to me, it would seem that if you have built up a set of habits over your whole life that you recognize, okay, I've got this strength and I'm going to go ahead and tap into that strength if I have to sometimes to ward off really bad people. But otherwise, you are in control. Then you wouldn't say that there's just little difference between this, you know, that it's like, oh, you have to have this capacity to do really bad things almost at a moment's notice. And maybe you're a little bit worried that you're not going to be able to control when you do them. That's, that's the sense I get, you know, obviously he doesn't say exactly that, but like I said, he, he doesn't talk about determinism either, but sometimes he skirts it. So as I said, these are, these are impressions. Um, But overall the advice that he gives here is, recognize that you must stand up for yourself. You have to overcome some of these things that have been sort of built into you about, you know, from the dominance hierarchy, the reactions of serotonin and other things that are going to happen depending on what happens in your life. So you put yourself in the best possible baseline through sleep and diet and everything else. And then as you go about your day, you try to do things like stand up straight with your shoulders back. So standing up straight with your shoulders back is not something that is only physical because you're not only a body. And yeah, there is, there's this interaction. Um, You know, but it goes on to stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. I mean, life, to, to call life a terrible responsibility has a fundamental pessimistic slant to it that I, as an objectivist, would not accept. And we also have a choice, right? We have a choice to, you know, go out there and, and embrace the positive experiences that are there, too. Yes, there is going to be suffering in life and everything else. But as I said, this is a theme that runs through. What do we got here on... Uh, someone gave me a compliment on the live stream. Thank you very much. Um, 
the, you know, this is the challenge, right? I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm talking about Jordan Peterson, who I really admire, and I'm supposed to be on live stream and worry about how I look at the same time. Um, okay, next one. Treat yourself like someone who you are responsible for helping. When I first heard this from him, it really did resonate because there are those of us who, for example, will take better care of our pets. And that's one of the examples he uses, better care of our pets than we will care for ourselves. Um, My example in my life was I actually switched my animals over to a grain-free diet before I even flirted with the idea of having sort of a grain-free diet myself. Do I really need to have a grain-free diet? This is something we'll have to have Rob Wolf on to talk about at a certain point. But yeah, you know, he says people are better at filling and properly administering prescription medication to their pets than to themselves. Now, why is it that they do this? You know, why is it that they... um, you know, are going to end up treating their pets better than themselves. He has um, the upshot at a certain point. Uh, let me find it. Sorry, you guys. He says, you know, you at, at a certain point you don't blame. Um, okay. So the reason he ends up thinking and it ends up, you know, he he talks about the whole garden of Eden and everything else is the idea of individual, excuse me, original sin, original sin, not individual sin, but original sin. Um, You know, he, he says us as human beings, you know, we've gotten all this knowledge about good and evil, right. And everything else. He says, we, unlike predator animals. He says, we know exactly how and where we can be hurt and why. He says, that is as good a definition as any of self-consciousness. We are aware of our own defenselessness, defenselessness, finitude, and mortality. And so this idea that we are aware of, that we can be hurt, we know, for instance, that we could hurt other people. He goes on to say we have a proclivity for malevolent actions as human beings, that this is going to end up being the reason that we end up not treating ourselves so well as, as well as our animals. Uh, you know, what do I ask here when he talks about, you know, focusing on that we can be hurt and why exactly how and where, and I say, why not focus on the life giving pleasure that, being offers us as opposed to the suffering. It could be, first of all, that in his clinical practice, he's seen a whole lot. I mean, this is psychologizing and just, you know, throw this out the window. I just, he, he's doing so much good to help the world that I, I feel like he doesn't deserve to have such a negative outlook. Anyway, you know, this is, this is me just interacting with whatever I'm speculating about why, but, I would say just as much as you could focus on the suffering that's inherent in being, and there is some suffering that is inherent in going through this life, trying to make so-called order out of chaos. But at the same time, there's just so much pleasure there as well. And we have a choice about what to put the predominant 
focus on? Is it mostly, is it mostly suffering because someday we're going to die? Well, that's inherent. I mean, the fact that life is limited is inherent, accept it and move on and try to focus as much as you can on yes, creating meaning, but also creating meaning that is pleasurable. Um, but in any event, he says, you know, only man, only man will inflict suffering for the sake of suffering. He says, that's the best definition of evil that I've been able to formulate. Animals can't manage that, he says, but humans with their excruciating, that's the word he uses, excruciating semi-divine capacities most certainly can. The language, right? It's dark language, Um Yeah, he says, who can deny the sense of existential guilt that pervades human experience? Who could avoid noting that without that guilt, that sense of inbuilt corruption and capacity for wrongdoing, a man is one step from psychopathy? I would say I disagree. And and at the bottom of this page, well, I'm on page 55 of his book, by the way, he says, perhaps man is something that should never have been. Perhaps the world should even be cleansed of all human presence so that being and consciousness could return to the innocent brutality of the animal. He says, I believe the person who claims never to have wished for such a thing has never consulted his memory nor confronted his darkest fantasies. And so then we would have, I guess, a he said, she said, because, I mean, I would ask all of you, you go ahead and consult and say, have you wished that? that you want the world to be cleansed of all human presence. Now you might've said certain times there are certain human beings that you would want wiped off of the earth. Okay, fine. Um, You know, who are those people and under what circumstances another thing is, but this idea that it's because of original sin that, you know, we think that inherently there is something bad about us. We have this fundamental guilt and that this is why I, I don't see why this is. So what is, you know, basically the answer for you? The answer for you is that you are supposed to treat yourself as somebody that you have responsibility for caring for. And, um, you know, he goes on, You, uh, this is, I'm skipping quite a bit, and we're going to have to pick up more next time because I'm going to be out of time in a minute or two. Uh, he says, you do not, you do not simply belong to yourself. You're not your own possession to torture and mistreat that in effect, you need to take care of yourself for others. And he goes on to provide very good, very practical advice, even though the context of it, he says, you're morally obliged to take care of yourself. But he says, you know, think what will be truly good for you. Um, and, basically talk yourself into taking the steps necessary to properly care for yourself as a being for whom you have responsibility. I'm sorry, I'm out of time and we're only at rule two. I am going to give you guys two hours next week and we will go through rules more quickly, but I think you get at least an overall sense to my approach to this book. Uh, I do highly recommend that you read it. I think that there is valuable advice to be gained from it. I will bring up next time I had pulled out of OPAR some philosophy from Leonard Peikoff to answer what I think is the fundamental issue of that. So that'll be the teaser that I'll leave you with. Next Wednesday, we'll pick up part two of my discussion of this important and excellent book. 
Take care, everyone. Talk to you next time. I'm going to go ahead and end the live stream and then the blog talk if I can manage this. Oh, okay. Here we go. Slide to stop. Bye, people.